This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Monica. Killed any terrorists lately? Yes, I am so ready to die hard. Oh, wow. Boom. That was a good one. (laughs) I liked it. This is part two of episode number 37 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie A Good Day to Die Hard. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Go away. We don't want you here. If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, you should be aware that this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've seen the movie. Again, this is part two. So if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and go check out part one of our episode on A Good Day to Die Hard. Uh, this week, as mentioned, we're, we're talking about A Good Day to Die Hard, which is the fifth film in the Die Hard franchise, and we actually have a, a special guest joining us today. If you've been following Cinema Fix, you know that we actually recorded a special bonus episode of the show on the first four films in the Die Hard series. You can find that uh, on the website at filmgatecreator.com or through iTunes. We had a great lineup of guests on that episode, including Sean O'Connell from Fandango and the Washington Post and Whitney Seibold from Crave Online. We were also joined by someone who we're privileged to have back on the show today to discuss the latest Die Hard film. He is a co-host of the First Time Watchers podcast, Tim Costa. Welcome back. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, uh, albeit very, very, very sad. Yes. Uh, If you listen to part one, dear listeners, you know that Monica and I did not care for a good day to die hard, and I'm I'm already getting the impression that Tim didn't like it either. But before we dive into our analysis of the movie and and really just rant about what went wrong here, uh, here's another clip. You got a plan? Not really. Kind of thought we'd just wing it, you know, run in, guns blazing, make it up as we go. What is this, a pirate gun? Gold school, man. Thank you, right? All right, let's go kill some scumbags. Tim, before we really dive into things, I just want to ask you to give your your general thoughts. What did you think of A Good Day to Die Hard? Well, I think I have to give my overall impressions, once again, of the whole franchise. You know, once again, the first movie is my favorite movie of all time, and the two sequels after that, Die Hard 2 and and Die Hard with a Vengeance, are very worthy successors. You know, I think they hold the the Die Hard name very well. You know, they, they carry the torch very well. And then the fourth one, I didn't like nearly as much. Uh, however, uh, A Good Day to Die Hard makes that look like a very good Steven Spielberg film. <laughs> uh, a Good Day to Die Hard, man, th- there's so much wrong with this film, and it and it starts off right from the opening credits. The credit se- the opening credit sequence is just 
terrible. It is just horribly edited, and and you can't even concentrate on the action and the the credits at the same time. Overall, it's just an awful movie. Awful. Yeah, it starts off on the wrong foot and keeps running on that wrong foot. Yeah, let's just start right there from the uh, pre-credit sequence. I have to tell you, I zoned out for probably ten seconds during this. You scene, lost everything, <laughs> and I had no idea what was happening. Yeah, I was like, "Wait, there's this guy named Kamarov who's in prison." And then there's this other guy that he has sort of a rivalry with, and there's something about his files. One of them has a file that's really important. And then Jai Courtney shows up, who I know from the trailers is John McClane's son, and he's apparently working for one of them. And he walks to a nightclub and shoots a guy. Yeah, what was the point of that? I didn't even understand why he was uh, acting as an assassin, because isn't he some sort of covert operative in the CIA, but this he's acting as an assassin at that point? It's to, I, I it's no to get to Kamarov. It's to get okay. seated right next to him in court. Because that's what his, he promises to testify against him. Right. But, but was he working for Kamarov and that was his undercover job? I, I've, I've forgotten already. I, I don't think it even matters. I don't think he was actually working with him because Kamarov, like, doesn't recognize him. He's like, who are you at the beginning? And, like, doesn't want to trust him when he's like, get in the car. I, I mean, what do you expect from the same guy that wrote Hitman, X-Men's Origin, Wolverine, and, and Swordfish? I mean, seriously. No, yeah. This guy, this guy does not know how to write write a screenplay. And John Moore doesn't know how to create a movie, obviously. Yeah, we, we, we'll get to that. But yeah, right from the very beginning, I was just confused. I was like, who are these people? Who's supposed to be the good guy? Who's supposed to be the bad guy? Who's working for who? What are what are they after? I was just like, I, I had no idea what was happening. Yeah. Then credits are over. We cut to John McClane at a shooting range. And we learn that he's about to go to Russia. And we discover that the guy we saw at the beginning shooting some other random guy is actually his son. Yeah. John McClane thinks, as we do, or are supposed to, the audience at this point, we're supposed to think that he's somehow gotten involved with Russian organized crime. And he's about to go on trial. And so John McClane decides he's going to go over to Russia and see if see what he can do, if anything. And that's why he goes over there. But he's supposed to be on vacation. But he's supposed well, to be on vacation, as he <laughs> oh keeps reminding gosh. us through the, out the entire movie. That is the one one-liner they wrote for Bruce Willis in this movie. That's the only quip he has. I watched Die Hard 3 right after Die Hard 5 because I wanted to show my boyfriend what an actual Die Hard movie was, and I hadn't seen 3 yet. So I watched it, and he keeps saying during the movie, I'm not even supposed to be here to Like, I'm not so. It's my day off. Like, he's been on suspension or something. He's, oh, he's complaining about a hangover. So he's like, I yeah, have this killer right. hangover. But the only thing that it kept reminding me of during the Die Hard 5 movie was the clerks thing, where Dante keeps complaining, but I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> right. At least in Die Hard 3, they come up with different ways to have him basically say the same joke. Yeah. No, Die Hard 3 is an actual movie. Exactly. Correction. There, there is plot. There is motivation. There's a feeling of intensity there. I felt like no suspense. There was no sense of danger in here. Like we just know he's gonna blast out of here. 
they just turn him into a, even more of a superhero than they did in the fourth one. Yeah. And it, it, there's there's never any sense of danger. There's never any sense of, of him being really threatened. You always mm-hmm. know that this is just going to end, you know, and, and it's, well, you're wishing this movie's going to end. But right. <laughs> you're right. There's There's no flow from one scene to another. There's no... I mean, his whole purpose of going over to Russia is to save his son. And then halfway through the, or not even halfway, a third of the way through the film, he, he gets him free. He's, he's, he's away from all the bad guys. And this is the point where any logical film would end the movie, essentially. You know, he, he's home free. Yeah. But no, they, they have to go and exact their revenge, I guess. I, I don't yeah, even we get We have to finish the mission. We, we, uh. We'll get to that. I feel like in order to really get into this movie we need to go scene by scene almost <laughs> go back to the beginning what went wrong here but yeah in terms of the script and and john mcclain's one-liners the only variety you get is occasionally he'll say i'm on vacation and in the next scene he'll say i'm on f-ing vacation and that's the that's the kind of uh, variety you get in terms of his quips which I still love that he even used I'm on vacation because he totally went there to bail out his son. Like Right. He's not even on vacation. He's there for his son. It yeah. makes no sense. But yeah, okay. So McLean goes to the courthouse. And at this point I'm like, what is he doing? Is is he so is he is his goal to get inside the courthouse and watch the trial? Yeah. Because he's really just standing around on the street outside yeah. the courthouse for no reason. And everything just starts to happen around him because he's there at the right at the exact time. It's so silly. Yes, I, I was just thinking to myself, are you just going to stand and wait to hope <laughs> you see him? What is your goal here? How are you? Uh, you want to reconnect with your son, but how? what's your plan for accomplishing that? But they don't even bother to answer that before we're just thrust into a random action scene. Again, I'm confused. I'm like, wait, who is attacking the courthouse? Are they trying to kill Kamarov? Are they trying to save him? What is happening? I have no idea. And this leads, finally, to the reunion of father and son, mm-hmm. okay? They finally see each other. Jack McLean is trying to escape with Kamarov in a truck, and here comes Bruce Willis to just stand in the way and block their escape. And it's like, why is this Why is this here? Yeah. Like, yeah. why doesn't Bruce Willis just hop in the truck with them and say, let's get out of here. There are men yeah. with guns. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk later. We could talk in the car. No, he really just needs to drop the line. He's like, Dad, I hate you. Yeah, yes. and they never address why there's such a division between John and Jack. You know that there, there's never they never explain whatever separated their relationship. You know, I, I just never got that from anybody. Apparently, he wasn't there enough. What he kind of <sighs> alludes to when talking to Kamarov when he gets left alone, it's like I thought yeah. my job was the only thing important, and then you know missed out on my kids. I don't need everything explained to me in every movie, you know, but at least something in the script to tell me, give me a little bit more to, to make me feel for, for this guy a little bit more because Jack is, is, is a douche. He's a douche throughout this whole film, you know? Jack and John. <laughs> Both of them. Yeah. I don't feel sorry. I don't want him. I wouldn't be close to him as a father. (laughs) Right. I mean, to be fair, over the entire series, McLean has been estranged from his various family members. So I think we're just supposed to assume that this is who he is. He's obsessed with his job. He's never home. Clearly, his marriage didn't work out. So I can buy that he's estranged from his son. I don't need a concrete reason. I just wish the relationship made a lick of sense. <laughs> yeah, but you think you think the family would be a little bit more grateful for saving them four times?
times, you know? <laughs> right. Also, at some point, you think the son would have mentioned to his father, oh, by the way, Dad, I got hired by the CIA. Yeah, and why doesn't, why doesn't John know that his son is a CIA agent or working for the government? I don't think you immediately get hired by the CIA. It's a process. Into some top secret covert operation where you can't tell anyone who you really are. Yeah. Don't you like have to start out as an intern or something and work your way up to that point? <laughs> you know, I want to go back to that opening scene where uh, one of the opening scenes where John is being told by his partner or whatever where his son is. Mm -hmm. That whole scene is so poorly written. It's like it's like a high school production <laughs> of dialogue and, and exposition. I mean, it's so rote and terrible. It, yeah, it, it's awful. Uh, but actually, I forgot to mention, before McLean gets to the courthouse, uh, within the first 10 minutes of the movie, there is actually a scene which I'm going to go out and say, I'm going to say it's a solid scene. It is the only, or one. it's one of two tolerable scenes in the movie. And it is a scene in which he is in a taxi going to the courthouse talking with the cab driver. Yes, agreed. And this scene, even though it's not incredibly written, actually kind of worked for me because it's the only moment in the movie in which John McClane seems like a person. Yeah, it's the only humanizing moment in the whole film. Right. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, we've seen stuff like this before where, you know, he's an American tourist. He's having trouble with the language. You've got the cab driver whose English is kind of broken. But I kind of liked the comedic beats there where you've got the cab driver talking about New York and trying to sing Sinatra. Agreed. It kind of worked for me. And I would say that one to two minute scene is one of the only good moments in the whole movie. Yes. But anyway, yeah, getting back to, to this whole action scene at the courthouse, this car chase, this is the first major action scene of the whole movie. I have no idea what happened in this scene because John Moore is such a horrible director. <laughs> I couldn't keep track of, wait, which car is where? You, sir, are no professional. <laughs> it just, it, it took me to forever to just realize who was in what car. Yeah. I was also kind of stunned, like, how, how much of Moscow traffic is just perfectly placed for these car chases. Yes. Especially that, that multi-car carrier that John was able to... Yeah, just right off the bridge. And it was like all loaded up with Ferraris and stuff. Also, I think this, this, was, this movie was an advertisement for Mercedes because that's all the heck that they drove. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know they're cheaper in Europe than they are over here, so they're... Yeah. Also, I've read a few reviews of the film in which people have complained that in this scene, John McClane probably killed 100 innocent bystanders. <laughs> Only I was looking for that in the movie. I couldn't tell what was going on, though, so I couldn't tell you if he actually killed any innocent people. There are a lot of cars overturned. There are a lot of cars overturned. I wasn't clear as to whether McClane was was damaging all these cars as to whether the bad guys were flipping over all these cars and supposedly killing people. I don't know. There is a moment in which McLean drives over mm -hmm. a few cars. A few? In his big armored truck or whatever. Yeah. And at one point you hear a woman scream <laughs> and he looks out the window and says something like, oh, sorry, ma'am. Yeah. yeah. But are we supposed to believe that he's driving over cars that have people in them? I know. 
Not a like I was like, what is happening here? Is he killing innocent people? Yeah, at the very least, you know, if you remember in Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, he he maybe killed one mime, but I think that's about it in Central Park. Right. Yeah, that's the joke. Yeah. Yeah, I was telling Monica in part one, in Die Hard four turned John McClane into a superhero. Yeah. This movie turns him into like this murderous sadist. Yeah, he's like he's like the Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, not only does he never get hurt, but he doesn't. He seems to just welcome all sorts of violence and mayhem. I know. That seems to be all he wants to do. He doesn't seem to care in this movie if innocent people will get hurt. Yeah, which completely neglects the the first three movies. You know, it right. completely... Uh, in the fourth anno- one, I would ignores argue. Them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, at least in the fourth movie, yeah, the action was insane and over the top, but you, you never got the impression that he wanted people to die. He cared for Justin Long. And in Long. this movie... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that, that's humanitarian, right? <laughs> in this movie, there's just so much incomprehensible mayhem. I can't figure out what he's doing and what his goal is. Yeah, It just makes no sense to me. I couldn't tell you who the characters are, really, who the bad guys are, who's trying to do what. It's like, are they trying to catch Komarov or are they trying to kill him? I don't know what's happening. Yeah. So, yeah, that scene is a total mess. And eventually that that leads to the second major action sequence, which takes place on this high-rise scaffolding. Mm-hmm. What is up with the bad guys at this point in the movie? You know, it looks like they pulled a lot of extras from Beverly Hills Cop 2. You know, a lot of bad, <laughs> you know, tropey bad guys from the 90s. You see those awful haircuts and, and the sharp business suits and all. I, I didn't even get it, you know? And, the, and, this, and this bad guy who was who's chomping on a on a carrot and then dancing for no reason. It's just terrible. But I wanted to be a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like John Moore saw the first Die Hard movie and was like, oh, we need uh, these, these European criminals, but we need to do something that makes them memorable. Oh, I'll just have this guy dance or eat a you know, carrot. You know and what? This is so going to feed random. into my uh, gender discussion when we get to it. Yes, we will get to the that. The bad guy is effeminate. Yes, Boom. yes. Huh. But yeah, and th- th- again, I can't, I don't know who anyone's name is in this movie. Not important. They're going to get, they're going to die anyways. Even when people started crossing each other, I finally just gave up and I was like, it doesn't matter. They're all going to die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there is an interesting moment in this action scene, even though I have no idea what's happening and where people are, when Bruce Willis looks up and sees all the glass. Oh, the gosh. Okay. And he shoots the glass. <laughs> And that kind of worked for me as a reference to the first film. There was a part of me that wished he would have actually said, shoot the glass. Well, that's the thing. If if he did that, he, you know, in the first movie, he didn't hear Hans Gruber say that. He would have never heard Hans Gruber say that. So he wouldn't have had any reference to do that. They pulled that off in, in the fourth one when John McClane and... and the guy, you know, uh, what's his face? Anyways, Justin uh, Long. yeah, Justin Long, uh, <laughs> uh, meet up with a federal agent, and and he says, "Oh, I'm Agent Johnson," and and John McClane goes, "Agent Johnson." But the thing is, he never even met these guys. He never would have even known who these people were. He, they got blown up in the helicopter at the top of the so- skyscraper. Right. So if he said, "Shoot the glass," it would have been another disingenuous moment, you know, to reference the uh, first movie. And also about the glass, there's glass throughout the whole 
film. There's glass being broken in, in from beginning to end, and it's self-referential. It's pointing right back to the first movie. And John Moore is a liar because I think uh, Andrew, you had forwarded me a uh, a link uh, to an interview that he did with somebody. Yes. Yeah, and and he spoke about you know trying to remain true to the franchise while trying to be original. And the guy's an outright liar if he's saying he's not trying to reference the first movie too much because, like I said, there's references all throughout this movie to the first one and even to some other the other films because, like I said, there's, there's glass in that scene that you just said. There's there's glass at the end when you know we'll get there uh, what happens to him uh at this helicopter and where it takes him but i i just can't respect john moore for what he said and what he did with this film i can't respect john moore period but that's <laughs> in the interview he actually said that they considered having mclean say shoot the glass yeah but that he didn't think bruce willis would go for it or something again i personally kind of think I think that would have been fine if they had just had him say, shoot the glass. Yeah, he didn't hear it in the first one, but I think it would have been a nice callback. And I I can't figure out what is happening in this scene. Again, at one point, he, like, jumps. They they both jump off the skyscraper and then are, like, just sort of banging back and forth down the construction tube or whatever. And then they somehow land in a dumpster at the bottom, so we're supposed to believe that they didn't get hurt. Yeah, and this is while a helicopter is shooting at them. It, I was Jack just like, does get that little, um, I guess, metal rod or whatever stuck in his <laughs> stomach, and he pulls it oh, out. Right. And it, right. John McClane makes fun of him for, "Oh, are you gonna cry?" <laughs> also, to give you an idea of of how senseless this movie is, there's a helicopter. The bad guys go, they run, they escape in a helicopter, yes. and they could theoretically just continue on their way and do whatever they need to do. But no, they insist on turning around to come back to try to kill these two guys. Did you notice that the helicopter was in viewpoint of the window from the hotel? So you had to look across what looked like a street. So it was like a connecting building. So that takes some time to get to. And they got there (laughs) in like 10 seconds. Like it was just on the rooftop. But yeah, we have a perfect view of it from the hotel ballroom. Yes. So they come back, and all I could think during this scene was, how are the Russian authorities not aware of what is happening? Like, at this point, they've taken a a helicopter and are just destroying this building, different pieces of property. (laughs) Moscow. Moscow is a war zone at this point, and yet... (laughs) At no point do the bad guys go, hey, maybe we should just fly away before the police come. Yeah, the authorities are non-existent. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, just nothing about this movie makes any sense at all. And also, this is around the time when we're introduced to Kamarov's daughter. Yes. Who was Sunshine. also present in the pre credit scene. I still couldn't tell you what she was doing. No idea. Or what happened there, but apparently he has a daughter. She rode a motorcycle. Yeah, she rode a motorcycle yes. and looked hot, and that was her whole purpose. There's a great shot that uh, the director had where it's not even her head. It's literally just, like, the bottom of her, like, neck or the chin down, and she just unzips the leather bike suit. Right. And in the trailer, they actually showed you a wider shot. Yes. Yeah. And that's not even in the, the movie. So no. it's like they, they just filmed this and they were just like, uh, we need to show this this woman uh, unzipping for the red-blooded her American's jacket out for, there. The, for the trailer to get people in the theater. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then it's not even in the final 
movie. Everything about this movie just screams studio marketing rather yes. than actually making a good product. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, one of the interesting... Okay, that's not true. It's not interesting. <laughs> but, uh, okay. <laughs> the, the, there was the potential for something interesting here and in that you, you've got this relationship between McLean and his son. And now we're introduced to Kamarov and his daughter. Mm-hmm. And there was opportunity here, I feel like, for an interesting parallel and to sort of look at these two different father-son or father-daughter dynamics. Mm-hmm. And the movie just totally passes that up. Again, I'm not sure does his daughter even like him. She apparently loves him. There aren't any problems. But again, I'm not sure at this point, is she on their side? Is she going to betray them? I, I can't figure out what's going on here. I still can't. Yeah. I feel like if the movie was trying to be an interesting film about parents and their children, it just failed on all fronts, not only with the McLeans, but also with Komarov. And you have to blame that on Skip Woods, the writer. Obviously, he just doesn't know how to write a film or interesting characters. And it's ironic because this is the first Die Hard movie that was actually written as an original Die Hard movie. Oh, yeah. Like the first Die Hard film was based on a book and then all the sequels after that were based on articles or or other scripts that were not originally intended to be diehard movies even the first movie was actually intended to be commando 2 you know so right yeah it's just uh, (laughs) it's just mind-boggling to me that the first script in the series to actually be intended as a diehard movie could be so far removed from what makes a diehard movie yeah moving on Basically, somehow they wind up at Chernobyl. Don't ask me how. That's a long ass car ride. That's a seven hundred yes. mile car ride to another country. Yes, where yes. they where they don't even need to pass border inspections or anything like nah. that. Nah, right? <laughs> nah, nah. Oh, Why not? also at at this point, before they even get to Chernobyl, there's a moment when McLean and his son sit down and they realize we actually don't need to do anything else. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. we could leave. We could stop right now. That's the second point in in the movie where they where they figure this out, you know? Yes. Yeah. It's like, we could just go home and McLean could be like, you know what? I came to get my son. I have him. Let's go home. The end. Yeah. And yet at this point, his son is like, no, we have to. That's what we do. We're McLean's. You shoot the bad guys and it's like no that's not what john mcclain does yeah. <laughs> john mcclain does not exist solely to shoot foreign people no he exists to to uh, help save his family or innocent civilians mm-hmm. and yes. at this point he's already saved his family he's already fulfilled the promise that he he made to his his uh, daughter at the airport before he left yeah he just goes on a revenge mission and it's just awful and it's like what is he getting revenge for Ugh. Just being shot at? I don't understand. Like, in, in, in the fourth movie, he gives this this little monologue to Justin Long's character where he's like, I do what I do, not because I'm brave, but just because someone has to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, someone has to be that guy where if there's a situation, someone has to step up. But at this point in the movie, he doesn't know what the plot is. He doesn't know what the stakes are. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't know Kamarov is a bad guy. As far as he's concerned, he, sh- he should be done. 
He should be. You're right. Yeah. But no, then they wouldn't have a third act. <laughs> Which was bad anyway. So. <laughs> okay. So they wind up at Chernobyl. Because it's the only other place, I think, near Russia that Americans would easily recognize. Recognize or understand. Yeah. yeah. That's yes. the only reason why I convinced, like, oh, yeah, they drove all the way from Moscow to the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, but before they go in there, though, there is a scene which I think compared to the rest of the movie, is actually a fairly well-written scene where McLean and his son kind of make amends. And they sort of have this little bonding moment where they're like, yes, we're going to go do this, and it's going to bring us together as father and son. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean at the at the trunk of the car where they're where gathering they're stealing the from, what is it, uh, Chechnya terrorists? <laughs> yes, yeah, something that. Like was their that. one political, like, side mention. Whereas the other ones actually have, other diehards have some mentions of other political things, and obviously diehard with the vengeance is dealing with the whole racial undertones of New York City. So right. <laughs> that was the one moment where it's like, this is deep, guys. <laughs> Talk about other stuff. I was watching that scene and I was thinking, you know what? Removed from everything else, this is not a terrible scene. I could see how in another movie, I would actually feel invested in this relationship and this scene would actually, it, it's written well enough that it could, it could resonate. Because they're using their words. using their words unfortunately because there's been nothing compelling about their relationship before this nothing about that arc really makes sense and works this scene doesn't work within the context of the movie yeah yeah i was sitting there and i was thinking this isn't a terrible scene but no it's not working because of what came before it i have to disagree with you i think that is is a terrible scene because it reminded me of that that scene I referenced earlier in the movie where he's that his partner is telling him where his son is and it's just uh, static, you know, and and it's dry. It's very dry. There's nothing emotionally compelling about it. Yeah. I'm kind of more in agreement with you, Tim. But I see, I think that's largely because of what came before it. And because there was no real build I mean, up. yeah, context is a lot of yeah, the story, it, it, too. Yeah, context, I have to be able to care about these. And if I don't have the, the previous hour and 20 minutes beforehand to, to make me care, then I'm not going to care at that point. <laughs> right. Like I said, the scene didn't suddenly make me feel invested in their relationship. But for the first, but for one of the only times in the movie, I actually did sort of view that relationship in more human terms. And I was just thinking to myself, man, if what led up to this had been emotionally compelling, this scene might have worked. I think you must have more of a soul than I do then. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe I do. Okay, but anyway, they're at Chernobyl. We find out that Komarov is actually the true bad guy. Of course. Again, I couldn't tell you what the goal is here like he's they're getting some weapons grade uranium from chernobyl which is great because the characters sometimes walk around without suits at all because they like release something into the air or like they heated the air or something and that made the radiation go away well here's the thing until now we've been led to believe that there's this secret file that will reveal that the other guy actually like secretly caused chernobyl or something and then suddenly we realize that doesn't exist there is no file there is no file and so i'm i'm just again i'm confused 
as to like, wait, what was the other guy after? Did he just want to stop Komarov from getting this uranium? I, I don't... Yeah, the whole double cross it doesn't even make any sense because if they had the key at that point, why did they have to wait until they were inside that vault to, to kill him for the double cross? It, it made no sense. Right. You know? At no point in this movie have I understood who wants what, who is lying to whom? Who is double-crossing whom? I, I have no idea how the characters relate to each other. So when there's this big reveal, I'm just like, okay. The Germans were so much more organized. Yes, seriously. But yeah, so Komarov turns out to be the real bad guy. There's something going on with uranium. What, is he, what does he want with the uranium? At no point does he reveal what he wants. You, you know what? I can take this movie as kind of a side plot of The Expendables 2, where Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> uh, needed to get nuclear warheads, and, and Bruce Willis was in that movie too. So maybe this is actually Bruce Willis's character, Church, from Expendables 2, and, and, and he's uh, teamed up with his son to, to help out somebody <laughs> who's, who's teamed up with Jean-Claude. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, maybe that's it, right? Hello? No? Yeah, I, I, I have no idea. Like, what does he want, even want the uranium for? Does he want to sell it? Does he want to make nuclear weapons with it? Ugh. Like, I don't know what he wants. I don't know why this is a threat. I don't know why we should care. Also, apparently, they have these magical vacuums that will suck away all the radiation. That's what it was. That's why I was like, yeah. I was wondering, all of a sudden, it's totally okay to just walk around and... The most radioactive site in the world where they had to evacuate. <laughs> and it was funny, too, because um, not too long ago, actually, Anthony Bourdain, real-life person, <laughs> no longer in the movie world, um, actually went to Chernobyl, and they're like, oh, yeah, you can now walk around here for about an hour, but then you have to leave because then the radiation is too much. Yeah. It's still hot, so... I love that they had this huge fiery like battle sequence and they blew up a helicopter and everything. And the only reason why they don't mushroom cloud is because the trunk of uranium just happened to slip out the back <laughs> right before <laughs> the whole big fight sequence. I didn't even notice that because they, they go by it. They go by it when they're walking out. They go by the two big trunks of oh, like man. the uranium sign. That's that whole scene is shot so darkly. I think it was shot that way at nighttime so that it could cover up the really bad CGI. <laughs> I think it's just so they're trying to hide the fact that John Moore doesn't know what he's doing. Like, yeah. once again, I couldn't tell where people were in relationship to each other. Every action scene in this movie is literally incomprehensible. I was confused the entire time. And then John Moore, for some reason, waits till the end of the movie, the end action sequence, to film everything in slow motion. Almost every beat is filmed in super slow-mo. Which hasn't happened before at any other point in the movie. And during the car chase, I think it does. Or, or during yes. the other helicopter scene earlier. But it's like not as extensively as they do at the end. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And, and, and there's another uh, rather blatant homage to the original Die yes. Hard when he yes. finally kills Komarov. Yes. And he throws him off the building and there is a slow motion shot of him falling like Hans Gruber in the first film. Yep. Except Sebastian Koch, he's a decent actor but the expression on his face <laughs> as he is falling is so goofy. Yeah. 
see, you know what's you know what's so bril- brilliant about the first movie is is once again John McTiernan, and when he released Alan Rickman, he did not tell Alan Rickman that he was going to drop him at that point. So that look of surprise on Rickman's face is genuine. Nice. So <laughs> obviously, you're trying. John Moore is trying to duplicate, replicate that scene from the first movie, and he's telling this guy, "Hey, act surprised. Act like uh, Hans Gruber in the first movie." And it's just terrible. It's awful. Right. And then, of course, it surprises you. It cuts, and suddenly he's chopped up by the helicopter, which, <laughs> oh, which I actually thought was, an, in theory, is an okay idea. That is yeah. a somewhat creative decision. Like, okay, we're going to have this tribute to the original Die Hard, but he's not going to die in the exact same way. Yeah. He's going to get sliced up by the helicopter. Well, Jeremy Irons gets blown up in the helicopter in the third one. Right. Yeah. Like, it, as far as death scenes go, I think I'd be okay with that if it was in a better movie. Well, yeah. You know what? If, if this movie wasn't a diehard film, if it was just some other... If it was a Jason Bourne movie. No, if it, if it was... Like, if they're trying to market this Jay or Jai Courtney guy as, as the next big action star, and this is his January or February release yeah. without Bruce Willis... I might be willing to accept everything that happened in this movie as a throwaway beginning of the year action flick. Yeah. But with the Die Hard name, it, it's just uh, a shame. I think it fails just even as a basic action movie. <laughs> like, I honestly don't think this movie would have been greenlit if it did not have the Die Hard name. Yeah, maybe straight to DVD, you know? Yeah. yeah it would have been straight to DVD. Yeah, the script is that bad. And, and also, I, the, the, during this final action sequence, all I could think is, wait, wait, wait. Jai Courtney is going after Kamarov while Bruce Willis goes after the daughter. Like, normally it would be switched. Yeah. You know, like you'd have McLean versus Kamarov and then the two children facing off against each other. And I was just thinking to myself, is this lazy screenwriting or is that more actually trying to do something new and interesting? Blame it on the lazy screenwriting by Skip Moore. (laughs) Keep going. Probably. (laughs) <laughs> All the blame. Shouldn't McLean be the one throwing Kummer off off the building? Or is this supposed to be like, oh, look, it's like father, like son? I don't know. But anyway, once Kummeroff dies, his daughter becomes so enraged that she just decides to drive the helicopter into the building. Yes. She becomes a kamikaze pilot. Because women have irrational emotions and do silly things. <laughs> <laughs> Did she not realize that they could just step out of the way? <laughs> like they like, do. <laughs> yes, like they do. <laughs> I mean, nothing in this movie makes sense yeah, that at whole, all. That whole scene where, once again, McLean is, is hanging off the end of the helicopter and, and, and he gets thrown into the glass. It, once again, another poor attempt at referencing the glass from the first movie and just making him even more of a superhero uh, that they that they started to make him in the fourth movie. It's just it's just a shame. I'm so sad. You, you guys have no idea how sad I am. Kind of. Because <laughs> <laughs> really, I, like, I went home straight from watching Die Hard 5 to watching Die Hard 3 and I was like, okay. Like, I, I'm making sure I wasn't crazy. Like, this is the kind of John McClane thing that I had bought into with the first Die Hard. 
Yeah. Tim, like like as we discussed on our on our bonus episode, I actually like all four yeah. of the previous Die Hard films, including the fourth one. I actually yeah. prefer the fourth one sure. to the second one. Well, I'll tell you, after viewing this film, I certainly appreciate the fourth one a lot more. Yes. I mean, say what you will about the fourth movie. At least Lynn Wiseman can make his action sequences make sense. A little bit more, yeah. Comprehensible. Yeah. This movie is just makes no sense on any level. Like I said, there is one one tolerable scene yeah. in the whole movie. Yeah. Monica, I don't know what more needs to be said other than uh, you You wanted to talk about some stuff that John Moore brought up in that interview. Yeah, that awful, awful interview that he gave that forever solidified me as a non-fan. He goes to say that he wants to create John McClane as a symbol of masculinity because as Americans, as a culture, we have been losing that. And when I read that, I was like, all right, you dinosaur, get out of the way. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, too. He already was a symbol of masculinity. He doesn't need to be built up. No, now he's become a symbol of what's called hyper-masculinity, that he's so unemotional, that he's so in the extreme, he's not even human anymore. Like, he and his son don't have a relationship. That's not, there's no way for me to buy that as a, like, father-son relationship. And they even make that little quip, like, oh, yeah, we're not the hugging kind of family. You know, well, then, and, and, you know, it goes back to the whole, well, no wonder they don't have a relationship together. They never talked. And then so when they had that conversation in the car, I, I just don't buy it. He obviously contradicts himself because at the end of the the, very, the last scene of this movie is the whole family essentially embracing and yeah. and uh, his his daughter coming up and embracing the two of them. Yeah, but it's okay because she's a girl. Oh, yeah. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me, you know, okay that for them right there. You know, that end scene, you know, the only thing that would have saved that, that last closing scene for me was if they actually had a surprise cameo by Bonnie Bedelia. I would have been floored if they had even thought about that and, and brought her in nah. to join in. It's that clear scene. that he doesn't care about the source material. And I think it's also clear that he just really has no talent. Also, it's possible that they offered a cameo to Bonnie Bedelia, but she read the script. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, too. But yeah, I'm going to post a link to to the interview in the show notes uh, where Moore talks about masculinity or whatever and the decline of masculinity in America. America. So he goes to Russia to just throw his cultural insensitivity and Hmm. brand of – it's not even masculinity. It's hyper – what we call hyper-masculinity because it is so in the extreme of just everything that we assign or ascribe to being a masculine trait. Right. I mean, according to John Moore, if you want to be a real man, you have to have no emotions. You have to go overseas and just kill whatever you like. You should love murder. Yes. Probably be a sadist. I'm surprised he doesn't have uh, McLean eating a a turkey leg and scratching his balls, too. (laughs) It's actually in the deleted scenes. deleted scenes. (laughs) Yeah. We've been podcasting for too long. <laughs> that would be better than most of the movie. I'd rather watch that, I think, oh, than this movie. Well, see, like, that's the thing, too. Uh, what I think audience is also related to in the first couple j- movies with John McClane is that he is nervous. He is over his head. He's very human in his fear. Yes. And now we've just made him a robot. Yeah. He has no fear. He goes, he goes willingly into a foreign country where he doesn't speak the language and shoot it up. Right. And there are also moments in the other films where he does show a little bit of emotion. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the scene in the first film where he's picking glass out of his feet yeah. and talking to Al about how his marriage is ruined and he wishes, you know, he could fix things. I feel like John Moore would look at that and say, oh, John McClane is, 
he's so effeminate in that scene. That's not a true man. It makes me wonder, you know, doesn't Bruce Willis have any kind of pull in Hollywood? And if he does, you know, obviously, I'm wondering if he even cares about this character anymore. I don't think he really does. Well, that's the that's the interesting thing is that in the interview and in things I've read about Die Hard 4 as well, it's clear that Bruce Willis has to sign off on pretty much everything when really? it comes to Die Hard and when it comes to John McClane. I mean, I believe Live Free or Die Hard went through multiple scripts and multiple directors. Because of him. Until Bruce Willis found one that he was happy with. And I think they ultimately chose Lynn Wiseman because Bruce Willis's daughter, I think, told him that she liked the Underworld movies or something. so, So Bruce Willis does have a lot of sway, but there's a point in the interview when John Moore says, we got Bruce Willis to sign off on the concept, on... The, the the script basically but at no point was it really looked over for its veracity as a die hard movie uh, so yeah. at, at at no point really were they approaching this from we need to make a good die hard movie yeah. i i got the impression they just went to bruce willis and were like could you see john mcclain in this situation and he said yes and so they just went from there. Mm-hmm. Oh, jeez. It's sad. Yeah. No, it is quite sad. Yeah. At, at this point, I mean, a lot of people are saying they don't want to see any more Die Hard movies. I would like to see a sixth one just because I don't want this to be the last one. And you know what would be uh, a novel idea? Hey, why don't you put them back in a, in a skyscraper or, or a contained location? That's what right. made the first three Die Hard films is that he was in a contained location essentially helpless you know he may have had a little bit of help by from al powell or from uh zeus from the third one the containment is no longer there mm-hmm. how about buried two with john mcclain <laughs> <laughs> well you know how that would end and and i would be really really sad with that ending. <laughs> all right is there is there anything else either of you would like to say about don't go don't go hard? see this pile of crap don't pretend it doesn't exist i think pile of crap is being generous there's a lot of movies i would call a pile of crap that i'd rather go back and rewatch than this movie yeah actually i just got a text message from a friend of mine while we were recording this he says i'm 20 minutes into a good day to die hard and it's already the worst movie i've seen in (laughs) (laughs) during the movie text you yeah you should text him back saying that it's a shame that he's even texting during the movie i don't know it is this movie though i mean he still has a chance to walk out and get a refund (laughs) <laughs> but he does have a he does have a good point because this is the worst movie I've seen since Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, I skipped that. And one. that was my that was my worst movie of last year. I and I hated every minute of that, and I hated every minute. Of yeah, this I could see this one. Right. I mean, potentially this might be a little optimistic, but potentially this might end up in my ten worst list for the year. It's the worst movie I've seen so far this year. But we're only yeah. in February. Like we still got the summer slew to go through. There's we're we're not even in the clear in the winter yet. But this movie's so bad. I really hope I don't see anything that tops it in terms of badness (laughs) this year. I feel that we all just collectively avoided Movie 43, so I think that was all a service to mankind. Right. (laughs) 
Okay, well, I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our quote-unquote discussion, a.k.a. really big rant about A Good Day to Die Hard here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing Dark Skies or Snitch, possibly. We might just do a special episode related to Beautiful Creatures. I don't know. We're, We're figuring it out. You know you want to talk about Southern witches and wizards. Oh, we are going to talk about Beautiful Creatures at some point. Can you guys go back and, and talk about the first Die Hard? I'd like to talk about that again. <laughs> I'd be fine talking about the first one again. I think it says something when of the three movies I've seen that came out over uh, Valentine's Day weekend, the best one was Beautiful Creatures. I told you. I told you. <laughs> Wow. All right. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. Uh, We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including our latest show, All About the Ultimate Fighter, Cage Side. Tim, it's been great having you back on the show. Where can people find you and your work? Uh, well, I co-host a podcast with Walter Vinci and Hermano da Silva. It's the First Time Watchers podcast. Uh, you can search us on iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at 1STTimeWatchers. Monica, where can people find you online? You can also find me online at, on Twitter at MCastiMovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at BOFCA.com. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!